Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 10 down through chapter 2, verse 5 in our time together. Did you ever put somebody in their place and feel pretty good about it? I won't ask for any testimonials. But you kind of sometimes have seen people and you say to yourself, that guy or gal needs to be put in their place. I hope somebody puts them in their place. We, we, we use the expression. One of the things that's fascinating to me when we come to this passage is we're going to find out that we all need to be put in our place. <laughs> Every one of us. And in particular, it's going to be a challenge really for those at Corinth. Um, have you heard this expression, man is the measure of all things? You can be anything you want to be. The sky is the limit. And I could give you one after another, after another, after another. I, I was interested this week, I was doing some reading, and and this uh, fellow from the Hoover Institute argues that the term hero worship was used for the first time in a positive way in the 18th, I think it was the 18th century. Uh, I'm sorry, it was in the 1800s. By a guy that was saying, we should focus on humanity as being the end game and the measure of all things. Hero worship is a wonderful thing. It's interesting to me. And, and what you're going to find in this passage is that the gospel has a way of putting us in our place. It's not only a problem in our day, it's a problem in their day. If you went back to Corinth, the Roman world, you would find a whole series of things. You would find certain people gravitating and saying, you know, the answer is man's philosophy. And you'll have a whole movement and a group of people that just run down that aisle saying, we can figure it out on our own. And others will say, if life is really going to work, you've got to bring a great orator in. And you follow him and you can persuade and manipulate and you can have whatever you want. You've you got to be born a certain way in a certain family. You've got to know certain things. You've got to be connected. That whole host of things. And folks, here's what happens. If the center of my life is bound up in this idea that man is the measure of all things. And what's most important is that you get on the bandwagon, whatever that bandwagon might be. You know what inevitably happens? You divide people. You know why? Because I'm on my bandwagon and you're on yours. And because you're not on mine, you're out. Do you see? That's, that's how it works. And it's the very problem that Paul has to deal with with the Corinthians. 
They, 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 they knew Christ. But they bought into the value system of their day. Where you were born, what you know, what school you went to, etc., etc., etc. How much education you have. All that stuff. How rich you are. How connected politically. All those things. So what Paul does in this passage, he first of all unpacks the problem. I want to kind of walk through that with you. Um, and, and, And here's what I want you to specifically see in this passage. It's fascinating to me. If we get this wrong in our understanding of our relationship with God, if we get this wrong, we will get this wrong in our relationship with each other. Do you see? It, it, it always works that way because this, understood correctly, changes this. So here's the problem. The evidence of the problem is pretty clear here in verses 10 and 11. Look at what he says. And I'm reading from the ESV. I, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and this, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. <laughs> Paul says, how do I know that there's a problem here? Because there's a problem here. And, 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 and I'm getting these reports back from Chloe's family, who is trustworthy and so forth, that, that, that you guys are fragmented, going all kinds of different directions. And what I want you to do, the ultimate answer is thinking the same way. Now, th- does that mean we should all have the same position on everything in life and be robots? No. Here's what you're going to find at the end of the day. If the gospel, and specifically the cross isn't what we agree on at the core, it will impact all of our relationships. So Paul says, we got to get this one right. You guys aren't thinking correctly. And then what he does is, he talks how serious this is as he unpacks the details. Look at what he says in verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, "I I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, that last one sounds kind of good, doesn't it? But I think what Paul's saying is this. It is so easy to be bound up in the value system of the world around us that we begin to form cliques and groups for a a whole bunch of diverse reasons. But they're all centered around humanity. That's the problem. And so Paul says, it's like some people are saying, I follow Paul. And now, is Paul against people following him? Not, he's fine if you're following him as he's following who? Christ, right? Oh, that, that, that's a really good thing. But if Paul's the end game, then we got a problem. And you got other people saying like, you know what? I am really into flamboyant, brilliant communicators. I am of Apollos. I mean, Paul is a smart guy, but he's not the best communicator. Apollos, on the other hand, 
Man, can that guy speak? Holy mackerel. I think we need to follow somebody who knew Jesus and his earthly ministry, like Peter. And so what happens is, Paul says, you're beginning to fragment around good guys. But it's become the end game. Just like your world would gravitate to, in, in their day, and I don't know this for sure, but in, in, their, in, in their day, they had what was called sophists. And the sophist was this brilliant orator who could come to town and he could just speak in such a way that he would just carry you along to believe almost anything. And when you found those kind of guys, you liked them. And people that followed them were called disciples. And so you had disciples of philosophers and you had disciples of sophists, great speakers. And it does strike me as interesting. Do you know the Apostle Paul never uses the word disciple in any of his epistles? Thirteen epistles, he never uses it. And I don't know why that is exactly, but I wonder. I wonder as he's coming into town, that has been perverted enough into this man worship. And Paul says, I'll use other terms. I'll frame it in different ways. I think there's other reasons he uses other terms. But perhaps that's one reason he doesn't use the word disciple anywhere in his epistles. I don't know. But Paul says, you're segmenting. And then you've got a group that knows none of that stuff's exactly right. So they say, I'm of Christ. And they don't say that because they're saying, let's just all be Jesus people. It's their one-upmanship over all the other groups. And Paul says, humanity is not the measure of all things. Humanity is never the end game. Do you know at the beginning of uh, this century, did you ever hear of the, the, the journal called The Christian Century magazine? When that magazine was actually first put out, it was lauded that because of, it, it had a liberal background behind it, because of, of, of all the things we can do, we are literally going to bring in a Christian century. Well, how well did that work with World War I and World War II? Mankind is never the end game. And it's easy for us to get caught up in that, isn't it? Where have you been born? What's your ethnicity? How wealthy are you? Tell me about your education, your bill. We just fill it in with different things, folks. We can do it. And Paul wants to come along and say, no, we have these divisions, and it's because you're misunderstanding. Look how serious it is, Paul says. Look at what he says. Is Christ divided, verse 13? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Take any one of the leaders you think are like, hey, now this guy really has it. Did they save you? Are you secure because... No, 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 no. At every level, no. He goes on to talk to him about himself, and he says this, because here's the scary part to me in this passage. If we become ultimately focused on men and humanity, we are replacing who? Jesus. Do you see? 
only one person can be at the center. It's always the way it works. He goes on to say this. And, and Paul says in this whole idea of baptism, just so I'm clear on it, verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Well, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be emptied of his power. Don't you love it with Paul? I mean, Paul's writing along, and he's just real fierce. He's like, you know, this whole idea about you were baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, I, I, I was the guy that, that dunked you uh, a couple times, yeah, yeah, but I think it was just so-and-so and Crispus and Gaius. And, oh, you know, I'll come to think of it, maybe a couple people from Stephanus' household. Okay, yeah, you can see him. He's just kind of talking out loud, isn't he? As he's writing this, but but here's what he says. And oh, and here's an aside. This is not the main emphasis of the text, but I think this is important. There is a heresy in our day. I mean, we are strongly. This is not the heresy. <laughs> we here are strongly committed to the fact that when you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you should be baptized, because that's an opportunity to declare to others what God has done. Okay? We believe that very strongly. However, we do not believe that you have to be baptized to become a believer. The difference between the two is heaven and hell. Do you realize that? There are some, there are groups in our day that believe you have to be baptized to be a believer. And I often will take people when they're wrestling with this to pastors like this and say, can you, can you imagine Paul who says, I'm all about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, what's he say? God did not send me to baptize. Paul, how could you possibly say that? If they were on par, you would say, God has called me to preach the gospel and make sure everybody is baptized because otherwise they won't be saved. Isn't that what you're looking for? It's not what Paul says. He knows what is central, and he knows what is a picture of that reality. So, if you ever haven't been baptized, we, and you know Christ, you should get baptized. But not to become a Christian because you are a Christian. Does that make sense? Anyway, that's just an aside. Um, I just thought that was interesting. All right, what Paul does then, if talking about the seriousness, he wants to give us a solution. And you won't remember all these words. Here's what I want you to think of. Just, just think of three things. Because the answer he gives the Corinthians is the same answer He's going to give us in our lives. When we become fragmented, and when we begin to follow a particular group or a particular worldly mentality of what's most important in such a way that it fragments us as a group. Paul's going to talk about the message of the gospel, the recipients of the gospel, and the messengers of the gospel. So that when we get done we see ourselves the way we are, and we see God the way he is. Okay? So you think about it, just pray, then we're done. No, no, I'm going to work through it now, but I'm just saying, that, that's, that's where we're going. Look what he says in verse 18. And, and, and I, have, I think I have another slide here, yeah. I'll show you these two slides. For the word of the cross, okay, let me say this before I read it. I'm sorry, sorry. I want you to watch as we read through this two things. I want you to see what view 
does the world have on its own ability and on the cross? And then I want you to watch and see what does God say about human ability and the cross? Okay? So, so watch both of these. Let me read it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, I, I want to take just a moment. And be fair to our first century critics. You know what the problem is? In our day, we all wear necklaces with crosses dangling from them. Don't we? And I, I think I've told you this before. But can you imagine if I came in and I had a necklace on and I had a hangman's noose on the end of it? An electric chair? What would you think? You think, I knew there was something wrong with that guy. That's what you think. I knew it. <laughs> no, you would say, Doug, that's sick. I mean, that's how we kill people. I can look back at you and say, well, in the first century, that's how they killed people. The, the cross, Piper said it like this. I, he, he has his way sometimes. Let me just read this. is good. He said, at the center of what Paul preaches is the bloody, criminal, shame-covered, torturing, scandalous cross of Jesus Christ. That is the heart of his message. Christ was insulted. He was mocked, ridiculed, scorned, derided, satirized, parodied, caricatured, and then hung upon, hung up like a piece of meat and speared to see if it was done. The Romans had perfected crucifixion. Actually, many scholars believe it came from the Phoenicians, but it was perfected by the Romans. And, and, and they recognized if you were going to, to effectively hold down crime and anybody that would stand up against Rome itself, you come up with a form of torture that would scare people to death. And so something that is painful... And slow would be a great way to go. And so you have crucifixion. And they, they would carry a, a placard often with them. And, 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 and that placard would say, basically, this person has violated the law of Rome. They are undone. They are a criminal. They deserve whatever they get. And the statement is, you are an abject, you're a criminal, you're abject, uh, ab, what's the word there? Abject poverty, that's why. You're the, like whatever the word is. You're it. It's the worst. You, you can do nothing. You deserve everything you're getting. That's what the cross meant in the first century. And the world said, what, what kind of a God would come up with that as a means to bring people to himself. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. It, it is why he says here in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly. It's, it's foolishness. It's stupid. It's moronic. 
to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, quotes from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Give me, give me your heaviest hitters, the best speakers, the most knowledgeable, those that can frame life better than anybody else, philosophers. Give them to me. Give me all. Give me all those guys and gals, whatever, whoever they are. Where are they? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Can anybody get to God on their own, folks? Can they? Can you reason your way to God? Can you figure it? The answer is no. If he doesn't reveal himself to us, we have no hope. But we live in a world, and they lived in a world, where people said, Man is the measure of all things. We can figure this out. We can figure out how to know God and honor Him. And for many of them, become like Him in our own efforts. And Paul says, you know what's so fascinating? God will step into a world and He will take the very thing that when they look at it, they go, ew. That's gross. That's sick. That's vile. And through that, he will show his wisdom. So humanity views humanity as either wise or strong. And they view the cross as either foolish or offensive and weak. Let me read on, because I want to make the contrast. There's so much I want to say. This is so powerful. Okay. Verse 20. I read. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it, it pleased God through the folly of what was preached to save those who believe. Man is the measure of all things that can lead to all kinds of pride. We can do this, we can do that. Is it any different in our day? They were saying this stuff, folks, 2,000 years ago. And, and I hear people in the science field and the philosophical field and the educational field standing up and just saying, we can do this. We can make it. We can. And it's wrong. It's plain and simple. It's wrong. And the way God will show that they're very Wisdom is folly, is by becoming foolish and showing his wisdom. Do you see that? So this is the world scheme. Here is God's perspective. The world's perspective, humanity is wise and strong. God's perspective, the wise are actually foolish and the strong are actually weak. The cross is foolish and offensive. Ah, the cross is foolish. What you think is actually foolish is actually the wisdom of God. And what you think is so weak, which is weak, 
is actually God's strength and power. Why did the Jews have such a problem with the cross? He tells us in this text. Let me just read on. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. For many Jews living in the first century, they knew that life wasn't the way it should be. And they were looking for an all-powerful Messiah to come on the, on the scene to smash those Romans, those overlords, push them out, destroy the enemy, and make Israel the kingdom of the world. And what we want is a Messiah who will come and with all kinds of signs and wonders show us that. And, and, and in their law, the Bible says he who hangs on a cross is what? Cursed. So when they look at the cross, all they see is messianic failure. Do you know if you lived in the first century, Jesus wasn't the only one that said he was Messiah? There's all kinds of would-be messiahs around. Coming on the scene, and, and we, we, you know, other historians record these different events of these people rising up and pushed down. And, rise. and you know what happens? Every time a, a Messiah gets pushed down or, or killed, you try to find another one, or you give up on the whole thing. So you live in a world where the, all those things are happening. And so the Jew says, if you take a would-be Messiah and you put him on a cross, that means he's not Messiah because that's not the, what the Messiah is going to do. And anyway... It means he's cursed of God. Everybody knows that. I was reading this week. There's a second century writer by the name of Justin Martyr who um, is in dialogue with a, a, a Jewish rabbi by the name of Trypho. And one of Trypho's arguments is this very thing. Trypho says, he can't be Messiah. Because when the Messiah comes, it'll be incredible glory, not failure. And our law says, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. It's the very thing he said. It's the very way they felt at this point, folks. The Greeks, on the other hand, were all about wisdom and strength and being able to do it on our own and... and, and that's, that's foolish. You know what I thought? The cross is being offensive. The cross is being foolish. You listen to philosophers in our day who are not, no friends of grace, and they say the same thing. I, I, I've heard people say, the cross is the greatest example of child abuse in history. And what they're saying is, it's offensive that, that a father would give his son 
and let him die and not do anything? What kind of a father would do that? And design it to happen. That, that is pure child abuse. That's what they say. But how can that be true in the union of the Trinity? When God sends the Son, but the Son willingly comes and the Spirit empowers so that something that happens in full union of the entire Trinity, where the, what God has willed and what God desires, God is perfectly accomplished. I'm just saying, though, people will look at the, the idea that God, is in, God has wrath toward us. Well, that, that's offensive. God is not wrathful. Yes, he is. Now, don't think of wrath like your wrath. You know where kid kid absolutely you know trips over and knocks over the TV on accident, and the dad gets up and starts swinging and yelling. That's not God. God is absolutely consistent in the fact that He sees a humanity that goes their own way as if He didn't even exist, and it's not the way they're to be, and it's not honoring Him. And his attitude toward that, the Bible tells us, is wrath. And that wrath must be appeased. That's the only way. So when people say, that whole thing is offensive to me, at one level, it doesn't matter what you think. At one level. But the more you enter into it, the more you're led down a road of saying, it's wonderful. God would love me that much. Richard Dawkins. I've heard him say it on video. It's crazy. He says, look, when you think of the, uh, of the cross, he, say, he doesn't say it's offensive. He just says it's downright foolish. It's just stupid. He said, look, if there was a God, which I don't think there is, but he, him, not me, okay, um, if there was a God who was in charge of all of this magnificent universe, which we find is just expansive and unbelievable, why would he care about a little speck called the earth with little people on it when he's got all this? Who cares? It's the dumbest thing to think some majestic God would become one of them and would be humiliated and would go through all that stuff on the cross. That's, that's just dumb. And when I hear him, I think to myself, deja vu, we haven't, we haven't gone anywhere in 2,000 years. We're using the same old arguments. Well, no, they get, they get tweaked differently, but it's, it's basically the same stuff. Do you see? So God in his wisdom has a message, and in that message, Christ becomes one of us. He humbles himself. He does die on a cross, but he doesn't stay there, does he, folks? But he goes through that entire process to show it's really God humbling himself through which we see his wisdom and his power. And in doing that, he takes all of the wisdom of the world, all of the theories of the world around us, of the greatest minds, and he turns it on its head because it's through power that we find power, not by something we can find on our own. Do you see? Everything gets turned upside down. And so, 
What seems foolish is actually wise. What seems weak is actually strong. And, and all you have left is a humanity who's gone because their way doesn't work. It doesn't ha- it's not going to get you anywhere. So here we are doing everything we're doing. What we find at the end of the day, there comes God into our world doing the weakest thing imaginable. And out of that, people become Christians and the world becomes transformed ultimately through him. And we just miss the whole thing because we're doing this. Look what he goes on to say. Not just the message of the cross. Verse 23 But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Isn't it just like God? To step into our world and to do the very thing that we would look and say, that's so weak, and out of that brings strength. While people on the outside are going like, whatever. And what he does in the process is, in that whole process, there are so many who look at that and they believe. They are the called. They believe. And we sit around and we go, how did God ever do this? us. And so he moves in the passage from the message to the recipients in verses 26 to 31. Look at what he says. I'm watching my time here. Okay, I'm going to move more quickly. Sorry, here we go. The recipients. Consider your calling, brothers. What Paul says is, remember, he's looking at Corinthians there saying, hey, we go down this route. We find our clout here. Therefore, we don't have anything to do with those Christians here because we, and Paul says, okay, okay, let me, let me pop your bubble here. Let's look around at just who we are. Look what he says. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It's kind of true of all ages, isn't it? (laughs) You know, like, yeah, it doesn't mean you're not blessed and you're wonderful people and you've been, I I get it, but, but at the end of the day, Look at who God takes and transforms. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are, are not, to bring nothing, nothing, things that bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to look at us. We've trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And God has redeemed us. God has saved us. God is in the process of transforming us. And and, and what he says is, the beauty of it is, it's not a matter of you having a certain clout or anything like that. It's about you submitting to who Jesus is, isn't it? And when you do, you realize all the ways of humanity are nothing but foolishness. God just silences the world. 
because of what only he can do in the lives of those that are his. Look at verse 30 and 31. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This chapter starts with the Corinthians boasting in themselves, their accomplishment, worldly human standards. It ends by saying, going down that road, there's nothing ultimately to boast in there. But you think about the fact that because you're united to Christ, you are redeemed. You are set apart. You are secure. Heaven is your home. The Spirit has been given to you. So boast in God and God alone. Do you see? When you look at the message, when you look at the recipients, all you can do is say, no, yes, because of God. And very quickly at the end, he talks about the messengers of the gospel. Chapter 2, 1 to 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to do nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you know what he's saying? In their day, these sophists were always coming into town, and they were showing how great they are, and they were getting great followers. Paul says, when I came to you, I wasn't trying to manipulate you with fancy words. Wow you with all my clever illustrations and stuff. No. I knew that the only thing that could transform a bunch of people that believe that man is the measure of all things is to simply tell you about the God who humbled himself, became one of us, died the worst kind of death so that he could bring us to God. That's what I want you to know. So Paul said, I don't, I want you to focus there, not here, on the content. Because that's what's life transforming. The flashy stories will come and go. The reality of that story will live on forever. Do you see? And Paul says, I'll be honest with you. I was weak and scared when I was with you. It wasn't easy. I thought people might kill me. I knew I wasn't going to have my message. I mean, I know I'm supposed to come in with this aura of just being like, the Apostle Paul. Da, 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 da. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. But it doesn't matter at the end of the day because you're not trusting me. You're trusting that, the gospel. And it is through that gospel that the Spirit of God works in your heart and transforms you and changes you from the inside out. 
I don't want to mess around with what God is doing. I just want to be the mouthpiece. I just want to deliver it to you. Can you see how the story of the cross changes everything? The irony of the cross, weak, strong, foolish, wise. The irony of the cross puts people in their place so that believers ultimately might put God in his place. Do you see? So that all of our boast is on him. If you're with us here today, you may be very educated. I've met some very, very, very educated people who know a whole lot more than I do, and their IQ is way off the charts. I get it. I get it. But can I tell you, it doesn't matter if you think that that is the end game. You're going down a road that will only devastate. I've seen mastermind people whose lives have become a wreck, whose relationships are terribly fractured, but man, can they walk you through all the philosophers in the current, both ancient and current. It doesn't work at the end of the day. And what I can tell you is, whatever path you've chosen, call it wisdom if you want, it's not. Call it strength if you want, it's not. You need to look at the God who's become weak so that we might be united to him and know what he has always designed us for from the very beginning. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this text was primarily addressed to us. It's okay to be honest. We're not the measure of all things. We're weak. We have uncertainties. We have doubts. We have all those things. But if what is central in our lives is the cross, the gospel, who Jesus is, I won't focus on the fact that I'm richer than you, which would be very few of you, but I'm just saying, I'm, this is all made up, but I'm richer than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm more educated than you. I live in a better part of the, t I have a better house than you. I have this, I have that. I, 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 I'm, I, I, you know, I come from a German family. I don't know, whatever it is. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If I get caught up in those things, I forget what is central. And if I forget what is central, it will divide me from you and you from me. But if we embrace this, we who have been humbled by the cross, we who have been placed in incredible relationship with Jesus Christ in a way that we can't ever imagine, and we're so thankful, I'll see you differently. It's, it's, that's the way it works, folks. That's why around here we're really big on the gospel. Because we think it is the answer at the end of the day. Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. And Father, we're not Corinthians. Most of us have never even visited there.
However, we are Corinthians. We can too easily focus on worldly things of importance and significance. And you, in your great wisdom, have chosen to redeem us by that which is foolish and weak so that we might know your power and your wisdom as we've been united to Jesus Christ and him alone. Father, may we live in the wonder that you have done this for us. And may it change the way we see ourselves and the way we see others. In Christ's name I pray, amen.